Hi everybody, nice to see you all. I want to start talking this evening about fear and resolution and doing the right thing. Some reflections on the birth of our latest child. So as many of you know, uh, we just had a new baby. And he's almost four weeks old. And he um, was born in a hospital in, in Poria, the hospital near Tiberias, the Tiberia. He was born on Shabbat. Uh, everything was fine. Everybody was healthy. We wanted to leave on Sunday. Of course, there was a lot of resistance to this in the Israeli medical system. which wanted to keep him in the hospital multiple days for reasons unclear to me. <laughs> which didn't inspire great confidence in us. Um, we had one uh, Russian doctor who we were speaking to who said, in Russia, we keep the baby and mother in the hospital for 72 hours, and we don't even allow the father to come visit. Oh. <laughs> and I said, and do you think that's a good idea? She said, yes. Oh. <laughs> so, so, um, so they didn't inspire a great deal of confidence in us, that response. So we're trying to get out of the hospital, and all of a sudden, um, some blood tests came back that showed some signs of an infection in the baby, in Amiel. And so we were transferred, he was transferred, to the neonatal, neonatal intensive care unit, to the Pagia, which of course was extremely scary, right? We didn't really know what was happening. Um, the doctors didn't explain things very well. We didn't know how serious it was or wasn't. Um, so that was a pretty stressful, worrisome, fear-filled day for us. Luckily for us, my dad is a neonatologist. He's a doctor who takes care of new infants. So once it was morning in America, we called them. We had him talk to the doctors. He listened to all the test results, etc. And Fairly soon, it was clear, by the next day, there was nothing that serious to worry about. There were some test results. They indicated that maybe something was wrong, probably nothing was wrong. Even if something was wrong, he was already getting all the care he needed, the right antibiotics, everything. He was going to be fine, which, of course, was a great relief for us. But then the hospital wanted to keep Amiel there for at least seven days until... Uh, certain kinds of results came back. So that was a bit surprising to us, given the fact that he was completely healthy, doing fine, no, nothing visible, no signs of any infection, except for this initial blood test, which is so elevated levels of, a, of protein. So again, I talked to my father, luckily, right? Neonatologist, researcher, professor of neonatology, and to some other folks. And um, the standard practice in the US and the UK for this um, condition, and in many hospitals in Israel, is to send home the baby after 48 hours, right? So there's been no signs of infection, nothing after 48 hours, you're free to go home. But they wanted to keep us for seven days, and the doctors are telling us, you need to be there for seven days, it's important that you stay here for all seven days until we get these final results back. So of course it was very hard being in the hospital, right? Um, you know, it's hard to be with the child. You can't be there the whole time. There's no bed for you. You're going back and forth. There's no support system. 
all the reasons, we have another kid who's at home, right? <laughs> all the reasons why it's not so easy to be in a hospital 40 minutes away from your home with a newborn infant. So we really want to get out of there. And Debbie in particular really wants to leave. And it's hardest on her. She's the one who has to stay there the whole time, try to sleep there, etc. And so all of a sudden we're faced with this question, which is, the doctors there are telling us you can't leave. It's endangering you know, the life of your child if you leave. We're getting all this other information which says, actually, it's totally fine. <laughs> There's no reason you can't go. So what are we supposed to do? It was a very interesting question for me. Because for me, a lot of fear and uncertainty came up around this question. Right? I want to get my family home. I want to do what's best for them. Of course I want to do what's best for the health of my child, right? I'm getting conflicting information on what's best for the health of my child. The information, again, I certainly trust the most is the information I'm getting from my father. And yet, for me, oh, this is your experience, even when I made clear in my mind, there's no medical reason we need to stay here, the idea of leaving the hospital against doctor's orders, right? Refusing their care, forcing them to come and take the tubes out of my son's arms, right? <laughs> Saying, that's it, we're picking him up, we're going home, produced a lot of uncertainty in me, a lot of fear. Am I doing the right thing? Fear about bucking authority, not listening to the people who are supposed to know what they're doing, right? What am I supposed to do in this situation? Fear of a mistake, fear of disapproval, probably fear of getting yelled at by the doctors, right? <laughs> who in any case haven't had the greatest... Uh, bedside manner or conveyance of information. So in the midst of, it's interesting, even as I talk about it, it feels like, wow, was that so hard? But in the midst of what was actually at this very stressful, tense, uncertain time, trying to decide what to do with our child. There was the question of how do I connect with this resolve to take him home? But having looked at all the options, looked at the information, there's this resolve now to take him home. What do I do? How do I connect with it? And really, that's a broader question. I started with this story because that's what has brought up this question for me most recently. There's a broader question, which is, how do we connect with our resolve when fear arises? Right? Any situation we have. It could be small things, like you have to tell something to a friend that isn't so pleasant, but it's important to communicate. Right? There's a lot of fear about that. You have to have some conversation with your boss or your advisor or someone else. Right? And there's a lot of anxiety about fear about it. It's the right thing to do. You have to give some money away or donate part of your time or effort or self to something that you know is the right thing to do. But there's a lot of fear and resistance to it. There's a rally or something that you need to do you feel like in terms of politics or doing the right thing or the pursuit of justice and you know you need to do it you know that there's part of you knows this is the right thing to do but there's fear and resistance to it right so how do we work with that situation of fear of uncertainty even when part of us knows this is the right thing to do and of course even though part of us knows it's the right thing to do very often once the fear arises our mind will start to second-guess itself and push away and say, well, is this really the right thing to do? Do I really need to do this? Do I really need to take this risk? Maybe it's leaving your job and setting out on something new. 
Maybe it's leaving a relationship, which really isn't good and really isn't working, right? Whatever the thing is that it feels like there should be some resolve there. There's some right decision to be made here, but there's fear. There's fear which is in the way. So usually we do one of two things. One is that we give in to the fear, right? <laughs> one way or another. Either we just sort of avoid the situation or we decide otherwise, right? <laughs> you know, part of us knows that it's really the right thing to do. It's like, well, no, maybe I should actually do this other thing, right? And we even convince ourselves that was the right thing to do. That was the best thing for me to do in this situation. Or we just sort of suck it up and slink off, right? However we do it, somehow we give in to the fear. And the other thing we do sometimes, in my experience, is we push through. If we're not going to give into the fear, it's like, screw you, fear. Get out of the way. I'm doing this, right? We're stoic. We grin and bear it. We sort of summon our resolve and just push through, right? And we do it often in that way when we do it from a place of a lot of tension. Often anger is sort of necessary to do that, right? We have to get anger at the people who are the cause of the fear, and that gives us enough energy to sort of do whatever it is we need to do. There's aggression. There's a kind of violence in there. Those are often our two choices, the two paths we take. And I could feel both those tendencies, right? They were very clear to me. I could, you know, just sort of like give in, be like, okay, whatever, we'll leave him in the hospital. It's another few days. So what if we all suffer? You know what I mean? I don't want to go through the whole confrontation, right? I don't want to get yelled at by the doctors, you know, the whole fear. I don't want to do that. Or I could say I could have said like, okay, these doctors suck. <laughs> I'm going to get really angry at them. I'm going to go in. I'm going to tell them what I think. And we're taking them home and that's it, right? But there's a third possibility. And the third possibility is neither giving into the fear nor fighting it off, but relating to it in a new way. A way that can let us demonstrate and act on our resolve from a place of clarity and gentleness and genuine power. And so the first thing we can do when we encounter fear in those situations is we can let it pass through us, right? We can just let it pass through. Whatever that fear is, right there, my fear of doing the wrong thing, of endangering my child even though I know otherwise, of getting yelled at, of being rejected, of having a fight. Can I just let it pass through? And what that means is that we don't need to hold on to the fear in any way. We don't need to control it. We don't need to repress it. We don't need to push it away. We can just let it arise and let it pass. Because that's what happens to everything. It's like the famous, famous quote, right? We'll read it in the holidays. From Melachim, when Eliyahu goes up to the top of the mountain, it says, right? There was a great and mighty wind splitting mountains and shattering rocks by the power of Hashem, but Hashem was not in the wind. After the wind, an earthquake, but Hashem was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake, fire, but Hashem was not in the fire. And after the fire, a still small voice. 
Eliyahu had that ability to just sort of let it all pass, right? Didn't have to fight the wind. He wasn't going to win by fighting the wind, right? He doesn't have to get blown off the mountaintop. He could just take his seat and let it all pass. It wasn't the wind. It wasn't the earthquake. It wasn't the fire. There was something stiller and silenter and deeper underneath. And so we can use, you can just use the out breath. You can find this, try with this sometimes, to just let it go. And you can say to it sometimes, you'd be like, you're welcome here, and you're welcome to move on when you're ready. Right? No rejection is like, you're welcome, welcome to move on when you're ready. No need to hang around any longer than you need to, right? It's very polite. You're welcome to go, exactly. <laughs> Just generous, right? Welcome to be here, welcome to move on. And you can, you can feel the texture of that experience. When you're resisting the fear, it's tight and nervous. But if you can stop resisting it, it doesn't have to control you. There's a lot of space there all of a sudden to act with wisdom in the midst of the fear, to not be controlled by the fear. I just read the book, I'm sure many of you have you read it, um, Eat, Pray, Love, mm-hmm. by Liv Gilbert, which I thought was great. And uh, she quoted one of her favorite lines from her guru, she said, which was, fear, who cares? <laughs> it's a great line. Right? It's exactly the right attitude. It's like, fear, who cares? Right? Nothing wrong with fear, totally fine, no problem with fear. It's all about how we relate to the fear, right? We tend to make it this huge, big deal. We get caught up in the stories and the questions and the fear of the fear. But it can be much lighter than that. It can be much simpler. Just like fear. Ah, who cares? Fear's arising again. And when we do that, when we're willing to be a little bit lighter with it, then that still small voice is underneath. There's that deep truth underneath. And it's a very important and powerful question to ask ourselves. We feel the fear. We feel the tightness. We feel the anxiety. Just ask yourself, what's underneath? What's underneath? What's underneath the fear? What's underneath the anxiety? What's deeper than this experience? Not rejecting it in any way, but just acknowledging that actually there's something deeper than it. There's a deep confidence and a presence, an openness, which is always available to us. We can just sort of check into it and just ask ourselves, well, what's underneath? And then ask ourselves again, what's underneath? And keep exploring level and level below. And what's interesting is that when we explore those levels prodded by the fear, what we find is this profound confidence and kind of majesty, this deep openness. In Hasidut, they talk about Yira Katana and Yira Gadola, right? So there's small fear. The classic example of that they give is a bear, right? So you walk, you see a bear, fear, right? <laughs> Want to run the other way, don't want to get eaten by the bear, right? Yira Gadola, of course, is awe. It's that fear expanded to the infinite. It's the awe and presence of divinity. And that's exactly what this process is. We see fear, we acknowledge the fear, and we ask what's underneath. Because underneath Yira Katana is always that Yira Gadola. Mm-hmm. The 
It's always that great fear, that great openness, that great expansiveness, that great field that can hold all of our experience. And so it's really just a sort of investigation that we go through. It's an investigation to find that deeper place, which is actually a place of love and openness. I know it's that. It's always that. Every time I explore it, that's what's ultimately there. It's true of every single one of you. It's just part of our human nature. But that's what's lying there underneath. <clears throat> and it's important to do that investigation because what that investigation does is not only at that moment do we touch that place, but we learn from that experience to develop a certain confidence in ourselves, a certain realization that that piece of us is always there. It's always waiting, it's always available, waiting to be accessed by us. We can always go a little bit lower, a little bit deeper. We can always ask what's underneath. And what we discover underneath is who we truly are. So it's so beautiful. It's like every moment, this moment of fear and uncertainty and meeting the boss or leaving the relationship or whatever it is, however the fears arising in your life, that moment of fear can be a moment of opening to Elohai Nishamash right? My God, the soul you've given me is pure, to that deep purity which is always present for us underneath, always present. And yet, and this is very important, touching the deep place doesn't mean the fear disappears or whatever else disappears. And it's very important because sometimes we have a tendency, I have this tendency, especially in my practice sometimes, it's like something difficult comes up, it's like, okay, I'm gonna work with the difficulty now. And I'm not gonna touch anything else until I've like resolved the difficulty, right? And you can wait your whole life if <laughs> you're gonna do that, right? Because <laughs> it doesn't work that way. It doesn't just like get resolved. I mean, sometimes you work with something and it moves on for a certain amount of time and it comes back at another time, right? But that's just not how things work. And actually, these things coexist. The fear can be present and you can touch that deep confidence underneath. So you don't need to solve it and fix it. You can be like, okay, fear, I see you, I'm open to you, and now let's see what's underneath. Oh, interesting, fear's there and there's this openness and confidence there. And they can actually both be there at the same time, and they can give you a different way to relate to that fear, right? a different place of sort of insertion. It can give you really the profound sense of security and confidence that you're not going through this alone. That there's something deeper and wider that's holding you, that God is holding you, that the divine is holding you. that we are always protected and supported by that divine nature which is constantly flowing and present in us and manifest in every piece of the world. And with that openness, interestingly and probably unsurprisingly, we can also start to feel the fear a little bit more. It's a little less overwhelming. It's a little less flooding. There's a little bit of space around the fear for us to actually be present with it and explore it and explore its manifestations. And this place, it's very deep. 
because it's your deepest nature. It's who you fundamentally are. It's a place that Pizetzner says, it's very interesting, he says, it's even deeper than your soul. It's a place that's even deeper than your soul, even deeper than any sense of kind of separateness or individuality. He says, how do we know that it's not, that's not your sort of most basic nature? Because we say, like, James's soul felt whatever, whatever, or did whatever, whatever, right? So we're still calling it part of this thing which is James. There's got to be something deeper than that, something more fundamental than that, which is your basic divinity, your basic non-separation from God. That's your deep nature. And it's available to you at every moment. And when we touch that nature, even with the fear still present, there's some wisdom then which sees how we can handle this situation. Because the ground of being, right, the divine, knows the right thing to do. It's not, it's very important that distinction. It's about when we touch a certain place, we don't need to decide from our heads. Because there's something deeper that knows what the right response is in this situation. We don't even have to really decide ourselves. It's not sort of a self-action. It's not us deciding. It's allowing what is true to emerge from deep within us. And it's sort of the fundamental intention. It's like how much can we approach every situation and decision with that courage to touch that ground of being, with that courage to touch the genuine truth which is inside of us, rather than all the confusions which are running around in our head at that moment, all the stories we're telling. And I want to be clear what that means. It doesn't mean that somehow, without any thinking or knowing anything about the situation, we can touch some special magical place and just know what to do all the time, right? It's not about that. It's not like information doesn't play a role in this. Of course information plays a role in this. You have to know things, right? You have to see what the situation is. You have to find out what you need to find out. The question is sort of, after you've done all that, after you have the pieces you need, there's a way in which our mind gets caught up in the tangle of its own uncertainty and worry and indecision. Should I do this? Should I do that? Is that the right thing? Is this the right thing? And I suggest to you, you know from your own experience, that there's that place of the gut, which when we really touch it, right? When we've got all the information and we touch it, it knows already. It knows already what the light thing is to do. It knows what our path is. It knows where we need to go next. And what was interesting was that when I was willing to touch that place, which I actually did most concretely with a teacher of mine, with Amita Schmidt, during that week, it wasn't hard anymore. I had all this fear and uncertainty about it. I decided, so we're doing. I walked over to the doctor. I said very clearly, we're taking him home. I know it's against your recommendation. These are the reasons we're doing it. We're happy to do whatever you want us to do at home, give him oral antibiotics or anything, but we're taking him home today. She was like, okay. <laughs> Sent me to talk to the attending. We talked to the attending. We did the papers. They took the things out of his arms, you know. End of story. And it was so interesting for me in my own experience to feel 
the whole shift, all the fantasies, everything that had gone in my head about what this experience would be like and how it would be and, and yada, 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 yada. And then when I could approach it from this very different place, having touched some place which was more grounded and central, it was no big deal. It was like, and maybe they could have responded differently. They could have responded with more anger, you know? But that actually would have been okay as well. <coughs> like I was feeling grounded and clear enough that it would have just been like, okay, you're getting angry at me right now. I understand that. But we're still taking him home, right? <laughs> so can I have the papers to sign, please? Like, it just felt very clear at that moment when I went in because I'd come in from that different place. And what's interesting to notice in all these places is that what's holding me back, what's holding you back, is that sense of ego, right? That sense of separation, that some sense of self-protectiveness. It was my ego, you know, which was scared of like bucking authority and having people yell at me and things maybe going wrong, right? Like, oh no, what would happen? Well, what would happen? Nothing would happen, right? <laughs> like, who cares? So let's say people yelled at me. So, right? <laughs> like, what's, what does it actually mean? What's actually bad about that? What's actually happened? Nothing, right? Nothing has happened. People have raised their voices. That's about all that's happened. It doesn't actually have to affect me in any way, right? It's only because of the stories I tell, my own sense of sort of vulnerability in a certain way, right? Wrapped up with my feeling of how I need to respond to authority, right? It's all about those stories, that reaction to me. Nothing's actually happening, right? There's a communication going on. I don't like the way they're communicating. So what? It doesn't actually have to affect my life in any way. But we get all mixed up, and of course we do. We do it all the time. And so we can remind ourselves that there's some place deeper to come back to, and that that place can be a source of, of comfort, of confidence, of clarity, of the right action. <clears throat> And one interesting way to sort of access that, which I found very helpful in this case, is to actually ask for help. Ask for help from God. Ask for help from that deep place. Stop, start to notice that deep place, and then ask. Be like, I need help. <laughs> I need confidence. What do I do in this situation? What's the response from that place of wisdom? And this is really the nature of humility. It's a very important quality in this practice, and probably, probably the central mida, I would say, in many ways in Jewish thought, is humility, is anava. Right? Moshe, of course, is famous for being the most humble of men and our greatest leader. And it's the humility to recognize that we need to ask for help, that there's something greater than us, there's something bigger than us, there's something larger than us that can provide us with that support we need, that can provide us with those answers we need. We don't have to do it all ourselves. The Pizetzner says that the fundamental nature of pride, what's the problem with pride? The nature of pride is seeing ourselves as independent, separate beings with self-will. Thinking that like, oh, me, I decide this, I fix that, I do this, it's all me, I'm doing it, I'm doing it, I'm doing it. He says it's actually a problem often in Torah study. <laughs> Because we say things like, well, I think this, and I think that, and my position's this, and my position's that, right? And we get caught up on our own sense of self and self-ownership of those opinions. But instead, we need to realize, like the Magida Mezrich says, that every action and thought and feeling, every aspect of ourselves, 
is the movement of the divine through us. Every aspect. There's actually no independence at all. I'll say that again. There's no independence at all. It's quite challenging. How did you respond to me, to me when I said that? Not to me, but how did you respond inside? How did your body respond? How did your heart respond? How did your mind respond? What? Yes, exactly, right? It's like, yuck. What do you mean? <laughs> right? It's quite threatening. It's quite threatening to our sense of self to say, oh, we don't do anything ourselves. It's really like, that wasn't me. I never just did it myself. Right? Interesting just to notice how much resistance there is to that thought even, just that suggestion. It's like, I don't know if you've seen My Cousin Vinny. If you haven't, one of the greatest comedies of all time. I highly recommend it. <laughs> but Vinny, the lawyer in the movie, and his very, very long-time girlfriend, I don't remember what her name is, but played by Marissa Tomei, um, wants to win this court case, right, by himself. So he does this whole court case, and in the end, he only wins it because of her help, right? And they've had this deal that, like, when he finally graduates law school, wins his first court case, they'll finally get married. <laughs> and he's like, well, I didn't really win it. I wanted to win it by myself. I need to win it by myself. And she says, oh, no. Poor Vinny, right? For the rest of your life, you'll have to say, so-and-so, whatever his name is, helped me on my first court case. I didn't do it on myself. I did it with somebody else's help. How terrible is that, right? So this whole argument is they're driving away in the car. And we do that all the time. It's like, no, I want to own that. It's me. I did it myself. I accomplished it. Yada, yada, right? And it's natural. It's like Ella, right? She's at this age now. She's you know, not quite two. When everything is myself, right? <laughs> Putting on her clothes, myself. Right? Putting on her shoes, myself. Whatever it is, holding something, taking things. And of course, there's a, a very healthy sense of independence and confidence that's important for, her, important for her to develop that. Like, I'm doing it myself. Good. Good for you. You're doing things yourself. But there's a deeper realization that there's no myself. No one in this world has ever done anything alone, ever, ever. It's just never happened, right? You are always interconnected with thousands of circumstances, beings, humans, the divine, which are helping and supporting you on your path, right? You didn't come into this world alone, right? That should be clear to all of us, right? <laughs> you didn't do that alone, right? And you haven't done anything else alone since then. Right? That's just that whole notion of the self we have, of this totally independent entity which does it all itself. The rugged individual, it doesn't exist. And when we can realize that even a little bit, just loosen around that a little bit. It's not about, we don't have to accept there's no independence. Don't even worry about that. But just, maybe there's not as much separation as I thought there was. Right? Maybe a little more connection than I thought there was. Then there's no problem asking for help, right? There's no problem asking for help from our deepest nature, which is actually what we genuinely are. So next time, we're going to talk a little bit more about fear and about anger, and really how they can be a doorway to this opening, a doorway to this opening.
But what I want to leave us with is really this experiment. So this experiment, which is next time you touch fear or difficulty, can you do two, th three things? Maybe four things, and we'll see how it comes out. <laughs> I want you to notice it. I want you to relax around it. Kind of let it go, right? Not pushing it away, just sort of saying, oh, I see you're here, fear. Welcome to stay. Welcome to go. I want you to investigate what's underneath. And I want you to ask what's underneath for help. Right? Just notice underneath and say, I need some help. How do I respond in this situation? So thank you everybody for your kind attention. Um, as normal, we open it up now to questions, thoughts. Will you explain the transition between Yatana and Yatana? So that, tradition, that transition can happen in multiple ways. The way I described it today is you feel some fear, and you use that fear as kind of a trigger to say to yourself, well, what's underneath the fear? What's the experience that's underneath the fear? What's more basic in a certain sense than the fear? And what's more basic than the fear always, somebody just close that door, is that you're a it's already there, that sense of awe and expansiveness. It's always already there. And we use the Yerukatana as a kind of bell which says, oh, wake up, look underneath and start to see what's underneath. That's one way. There are other ways to do it as well. One way, for instance, that I often do in my davening, if I notice some fear or anxiety arising in my davening, what I try to do is create space around it. Just mentally. Can I create infinite space around it? There are different ways I use to do that. Sometimes I use images. So first I'll, I'll imagine a huge, vast, vast field in which that fear or anxiety can play. And in my experience, it's touching that sense of vastness which transforms it then into Yerogadola. We already see that sense of awe and the small fear is kind of, it's just small. It's one little sort of horse prancing or something in that huge field. Sometimes I'll do technique, I don't remember where I learned this, is which I'll breathe in <clears throat> and imagine infinite breath filling me, and I'll breathe out and imagine infinite breath expanding out, filling the world. And it's just all about feeling that sense of expansiveness, Can I feel that sense of wideness. And it's just that expanding out which transforms, in my experience, that fear and anxiety into that deeper sense of awe, that sense of openness. Yeah. I'm curious about the idea of, like, all where everything comes from, like everything kind of comes from this one internal source of, of God, the ground of all being, whatever you want to call yeah. it. Uh, um, then also wouldn't our, like our more challenging negative, negative impulses come from that same place? Yeah. And how do you deal with you know, crediting the divine, crediting God with those things that you helped to achieve, but at the same time trying to like own and take responsibility for your negative actions? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, which I want to answer in two ways. Uh, I'll deal very briefly, just because you asked if that's sort of like a metaphysical piece to the question, like how do you think about God and stuff, which I'll sort of talk about, but really I think is completely unimportant. I'm just going to put that out there, right? <laughs> yeah. I don't think it's important at all. I think it's completely irrelevant. I don't think it matters at all, right? I think we talk about God, we talk about theology, because we're talking about how to be certain kinds of human beings. And if we imagine that there are 
metaphysical or sort of logical or step-by-step -step answers to that broad experience of expansiveness and that greatness which is out there, I think it's just a big mistake and we're approaching things in the wrong way. So, yes, on one hand, everything is divine. Everything is a manifestation of divine. And that means even our mistakes, even difficulty, even evil. And that language for me is very important, not as a metaphysical truth, but as an orientation towards life. That is, it makes us stop and say, this thing which I'm making the enemy for a moment, right? It's like, whatever, it doesn't matter what it is. My own mistake, somebody else's mistake, some terrible action that's happened somewhere, which may be a terrible action. It's not about not recognizing that things are terrible. It's about not turning it into the enemy, not turning it into the other, right? So instead of saying that's the enemy, I see, okay, wait a second. God is present there as well. And so I have to understand with some wisdom how to relate to that. Right? At the same time, we need to recognize when things are damaging and harmful and bad. Very important recognition. And in two ways. One is to clearly take responsibility when we're the responsible party. It's very interesting and I think important that you don't have to be a self to take responsibility. Right? All you need to do to take responsibility is recognize that you were the active cause of that action. Not as a self, not as some totally independent yada, yada, yada. Just like, here's me, James. I'm a product of certain conditions, of certain people helping me, etc. I'm the product of everything I am. I did this action, so I need to take responsibility for it. Right? So it's very important, that notion of responsibility and taking responsibility. Crucial. And it's crucial, the notion of seeing where things are wrong in the world, where pain and suffering is happening. But, and here I think is the key difference in why this language is helpful. I can see myself or somebody else doing something wrong. As I said before, I can say evil, bad. Punish the person, hurt the person, revenge, remove the person, erase the person, right? All those responses are responses of that is something of evil, either outside or inside. It can be the same thing about me. It's like, oh, Thoughts of violence in me. Bad, terrible, must be erased, pushed out, destroyed. Just responding to violence with violence and for various other reasons which we'll talk about is not going to be very effective or healthy for your psyche. Or I can do something else, which is I can say destructive, harmful, painful. Therefore, one, it must be coming from some kind of ignorance, pain, and suffering, right? That person, either me or the other person, who is acting in that destructive, harmful, painful way is not because they are inherently evil or they are out to just get people from birth. It's because somehow they have been twisted and distorted by their own experiences of misunderstanding, ignorance, pain, and suffering. And two, what can I do to stop that harmful action from happening? That might still mean, for instance, I need to put the person in jail. It's not that we don't need that when we need to do that. It's like, this person is dangerous, they need to go in jail. That might be the answer. But I don't put them in jail because I want revenge or I want to punish them, right? It's a different sense. I put them there because this harmfulness is gonna keep on happening if I don't do that. 
I need to restrain that person. I need to find whatever it is we need to do. Right? It's not that there are no structures. It's not that we don't need to act. I need to act to make sure this person loses power or this policy is changed or this person starts, stops talking in that way or I stop talking to people in this way or yelling at people in this way, whatever it is that I'm doing, taking responsibility for it. So we make that movement for action. But by recognizing the fundamental substrata of divinity, we recognize that all those missteps and, and difficulties and hurts are distortions of the fundamental underlying structure of divinity, not its genuine nature. And that's how we can always look and say, nobody's ever fundamentally out to get anybody, right? And even sort of theologically, I would say, and this is at least the way certain Hasidim talk about it and, and Kabbalists, at least certain schools within them, this isn't universal. If one genuinely believes to any extent in a good God, right, who is ultimately all-powerful, then everything comes from God. Not just the basic insight. Everything comes from the divine. Of course things are twisted. Of course things go wrong. But nothing can be fundamentally evil at the core. As soon as you think that, then there's like some power other than God. Right? There's like Satan sitting somewhere with a pitchfork who's uh, you know, fighting with God as if in some kind of equal power. And certainly in our tradition, that can't be the case. Even the Sitra Akhra, sort of that power of evil in the tradition, has to ultimately be, be um, grounded in the divine. And at least in Kabbalistic terminology, comes out of a sort of misstep within Gevura, sort of explosion within the spirit. But it ultimately has to be grounded within the divine. And so we acknowledge both those truths. And we try to do it in a wise way. And I think one of the greatest examples of that, in my opinion, is the Baal Shem Tov. The Baal Shem Tov taught over and over again in his teachings how when evil or difficulty or suffering arises, right, how we need to recognize that it's underneath the divine, welcome it in, even have gratitude for it sometimes, recognize the divinity of everything. But what was his day job, right? <laughs> he was a Baal Shem, which meant he went around healing people. That's what Baal Shem did. He wasn't the only Baal Shem. He was a, a communal institution. It was a, you know, institutional was a job description in Eastern Europe. It meant that you were a kind of faith healer. You went around with medicines, herbs, other things, the divine name, which is why you were Baal Shem, and went around healing people. So he didn't see people in suffering and say to them, you know, it's all divine. Don't worry about it, right? <laughs> he encouraged a certain kind of response to that for ourselves to go and see how to heal suffering. But when suffering's happening, he went and did his best to heal it. When he had, you know, stories of his, when he sees a pogrom coming and he tries to ascend to heaven to stop the pogrom, right? When you see suffering happen, you take whatever action you need to take to try and stop the suffering while recognizing that at the deeper level, it's all divine. And again, I don't, you know, we could talk more and I could tell various stories about how that works out sort of metaphysically. But from my perspective, the metaphysical part is irrelevant. The metaphysics, the language of metaphysics we use is the language we use to help us have these deep insights about how to be in the world, right? It's not about sort of deciding finally what the heavens look like, which personally I think is a kind of futile project and not the project we should be engaged in. Not that you can't be engaged in that. <laughs> I'm just sharing my own personal inclination in that direction. So you talked about Please, 
but yet you're creating imagery with the purpose of encouraging it or like of helping it go. Good. So hold on a second. That's why I wanted to pause you. As soon as you said the word encourage, I got nervous. Because <laughs> right? as soon as you start encouraging it to go, you're in trouble. Right? Exactly in the way you're saying it. Right? There's no encouraging it to go. But there's letting it know, exactly what I said, with kindness, that it is welcome to go. And, and that's very important because we have very strange reactions to things. On the one hand, we're totally pushing things away. On the one hand, on the other hand, once we open to things, we often have a kind of obsessive involvement with them, right? And so we're actually trying to cultivate something much lighter than that. It's like, oh, fear. Right, hi, fear. Totally can stay if you want to. Welcome to hang out. You're also welcome to move on whenever you want to. And it's going to move on. That's just the nature of all things. Even, I mean, one of the interesting things to notice, when you notice any state which you're working with, let's say a fear, a fear state, if you really try and notice moment to moment, you'll see it's not constant. Even if it comes back after a second, there, there are gaps. There are moments when like, oh, not fear. Actually, everything's fine. Oh, fear again. Okay, right? <laughs> so it's not, so you don't want it, there's no encouraging. And that's exactly right. I mean, it's an interesting problem, which um, is a very common problem. I know I've experienced it, which is once you do this a little bit, right? And you open and it's like, wow, that felt so much better. And things are like just much more open and possible and present. And then you start to have this feeling, this sort of very subtle bargaining, which is like, I'll completely open as long as you go away. Right? <laughs> and then, of course, it doesn't work at all because you're not really opening, right? Because <laughs> you're actually just trying to make it go away. So you have to actually be quite kind of subtle with that and aware of that and notice. It's like, notice, oh, am I opening just so it'll go away? Okay, can I open to that now? Can I open to the desire for it to go away and really just try to open to it and give it space without any you know, decision about what has to happen because of that and where that experience has to go. One last question. <laughs> Hello? You. Um, funnily enough, even before you said it, I was actually going to ask you about visuals because mm. you've never, at least in my hearing, never really spoken about using um, visual techniques and when it comes to subtle things like trying to hold two emotions at once inside, it could be that particular visual images could be very helpful. Yeah. So you've mentioned a field, and I'm just wondering if there are any other visuals that you've used that are helpful. Yeah, I don't use visualization very much, which is why I don't talk about it, although I've had a kind of quite interesting breakthrough in the last two years. Um, just sort of personal biography, which is all of a sudden, through, I've continually experimented with it every once in a while, um, and I know for other people it sometimes works very well and can be very helpful. I've always felt totally disconnected from it. And also in the last two years, something started to open up a little bit, and it's been a little bit more helpful. Um, are there other visualizations that I use? That's the question. I can only think of right now at the moment one, two other, two other visualizations that I use. Um, I'll share them with you briefly, but most importantly is use what works, right? <laughs> like that's the whole point. <laughs> the point is not to be wedded to any particular way of doing things. So if you use some visualization, which helps you experience that openness, wonderful. Go for it, right? So I'll tell you briefly the things that I've used. One thing I've done as a concrete practice, which has been very helpful, is to attempt to very concretely visualize some quality that I want to cultivate in myself. Um, it's a whole sort of process, and we can talk about it at some time, and then actually invite that quality into myself. 
So it's a whole process of visualizing it. You then invite it in and allow it to dissolve inside of you. Um, the other way I've used it is uh, with um, techniques which are, again, trying to cultivate certain qualities, such as loving kindness or compassion, is visualizing the person who I'm sending that compassion or loving kindness to in front of me. And actually, the way I found it most successful, um, which I all did for the first time in one retreat not many years ago, was I do it with walking meditation and visualize the person wherever I'm going to stop the walking meditation. I visualize them there and I walk towards them sending phrases, kind of give them a hug at the end, <laughs> turn around, visualize them at the end of the walking path again, and walk again towards them, visualizing their presence. You know, and for me, when I say visualization, also just to be clear, it doesn't necessarily mean that it's visual. Something that's just like a felt sense, a sound, you know, just working with that sort of sensation of having that presence before you. For some people it is more visual, some people it's other sensations, whatever works for you basically is what to use. Okay, it was wonderful sitting together. We won't be meeting next week because it's Rosh Hashanah. <laughs> we'll be meeting in two weeks. Um, again, the class is by donation. Uh, please give generously. I'm going to put out there, um, I don't know if you have one yet, but if you're new to the class and want to put down your name and email address, I send it an email every week which just says whether we're meeting or not for the class. So sometimes, you know, it's Rosh Hashanah or I'm out of town or whatever and we're not meeting. Uh, you can put down your name and email address. So thank you everybody so much. It was wonderful sitting with you. And I'll see you again each week. Right outside the door, there's a little um, bowl there. And I'll put this out with it. Oh, and, and are you in charge of the unit? Yes, there will be cleanup. Um, please help out. The room is going to be put back together. So this you should probably keep okay. sealed it as well as I could.